It is just a joy to be here with you this morning. I am just so encouraged and excited about where we are as a church at this time. I, I believe personally that this may be one of the biggest things that God's ever called us to do as a church. And if that's the case, I want to encourage you to go on the ride with me. Uh, we're going to be here for another five weeks Make this a priority in your calendar. Show up as much as you can, and even more than you can, um, and be here with me. Because this series, our story, is about so much more than a project. You know, if you call Osterville home, if this is your home church, our story is your story. And to be clear, what we're doing in this series is we are celebrating God. You know, we're celebrating what God has done in this place. We're celebrating what he's doing right now in this place. And we are going to dare greatly for the future. We believe that God has a plan for Osterville Baptist Church. I believe in this church. I believe in you guys. I'm honored to be called the pastor of this church at this time. I wouldn't want to be in any other church in the United States of America right now than this church at this time. Now, as we go into this process, I think it's important for us to begin with the idea of remembering. Why is remembering important in the life of faith? Well, I would suggest this. In many ways, the life of faith is one big act of remembering. Uh, to follow God requires you and me to remember who he is, to remember what he's done, to remember what he's done in my life specifically, to remember even his promises and what he has told us about the future. Think of it like this. Imagine instead of a life of remembering, a life of forgetting. What if you could not remember anything that's happened? Now, we don't have to actually imagine this. Uh, if you look in, you know, uh, recent history, there is a man known as H.M. in brain research who was responsible for advancing brain research farther than anyone else has. And the reason that he did this was at the age of 27, H.M. was involved in an experimental operation. You see, he struggled with significant seizures due to epilepsy. It was debilitating. He couldn't even hold down a job. So they tried this experimental operation. HM goes through the operation. They solve the problem of the seizures, at least mitigate them greatly. But the problem is, is they didn't understand at that time what the area, this area of the brain was responsible for. So it turns out that the area of the brain that they removed from HM was the area of the brain for establishing new long-term memories. Okay, imagine this, 27 years old, no new memories moving forward. No new friendships. If your family expands, say, your sister has a child, no memory of who that child is, no memory of new information as you receive it along the way, no memory of what you had for lunch or even if you ate lunch that day, a life of forgiving. Here's the thing. 
I want to suggest this morning that to live that sort of life, whether physically or spiritually, would be detrimental for us, debilitating. In fact, this is what Moses tells us in the scriptures as we look at the book of Deuteronomy. Now, you might be asking yourselves the question, well, how in the world does a book like Deuteronomy have anything to tell us about our story? And I want to suggest this morning that our story is not a fragmented story. Our story is a connected story. It didn't start, after all, the day that I became the senior pastor of Osterville Baptist Church, as much as I might like to tell myself that. And our story didn't begin the day that you became a believer in Jesus Christ. No, our story is a connected story. I appreciate what this author says. I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I can answer the question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? It turns out that our story is a part of a much, much bigger story. It's God's grand story of redemption. And one of the, the significant milestones along the way in that story is the book of Deuteronomy. Now, let me give you the Reader's Digest version of this book. It's the fifth book of the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. So the first book is Genesis. And if you want to summarize Genesis, creation, fall, and then call. God calls Abraham and his descendants. The book of Genesis ends with those descendants in Exodus or in Egypt. Then we pick up in Exodus chapter one. In one chapter, we have 400 years of history. The people of Israel become slaves to the Egyptians. In chapter 2 of the same book, we hear about Moses. Moses has a big call in his life, only Moses spins his spiritual wheels for like 80 years. We pick up Exodus chapter 3, and the story starts moving along. In fact, if you go from Exodus 3 on through Leviticus to the middle of Numbers, that covers one year of history. But it was kind of a big year. (laughs) It was the year when God shows up in Egypt with signs and wonders, and the people of Israel are brought out of Egypt, and Pharaoh chases them, and God delivers them at the Red Sea. Then they go to Mount Sinai. They receive the law of God. And God, in a year, is preparing his people to enter where? the promised land. Well, then we read perhaps the second greatest tragedy since the fall up to this point in the story. Numbers chapter 13 and 14. What happens there? Well, the people of Israel forget. They forget all these things that God has done, all of these signs and wonders that he's performed for them. They get to the precipice of the promised land and they get scared and they tell God no, essentially. They turn away from the promised land. So then God, as a sign of judgment, says to them, this forgetting generation will not enter the promised land. And now we come to the book of Deuteronomy. This is a new generation. 
The forgetting generation has passed away. The new generation is standing right outside of the boundary of the Jordan River. And Moses is telling them three sermons. And the core of these sermons is, do not forget. Remember. I like what this pastor says. Remembering, remembering has very little to do with accessing mental files about the past. It has much more to do with living wisely in the present in light of the past. Okay, think about this for a minute. Sometimes I think we fool ourselves a little bit and we say to ourselves, well, you know, if I was the people of Israel and I saw the things that they saw if I walked through the dry ground with the waters parted at the Red Sea, I would have been faithful. I would have been on mission with God. But Moses' message to this new generation is don't fool yourself. Don't be too quick to go there. If you really want to be the kind of person that would do that, you've got to learn how to remember. And so he says this to them in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. This is his big point to them. Watch out. Be careful never to forget what you yourself have seen. Do not let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live, and be sure to pass them on to your children and to your grandchildren. Remembering is not about accessing files from the past. It's about living wisely in the present. And what did they need to remember? Well, Mark Dever says that you can actually summarize the book of Deuteronomy by considering two choices. Uh, the first choice in Deuteronomy is that God chooses his people. Now, when it comes to this choice, that is a carve it in granite choice. That's the kind of choice where in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says, listen, I'm choosing you, so now you get to be chosen. And here's the deal. It's not because you're some kind of special group of people compared to everyone else in the world. In fact, there's a lot of reasons why you're not so special. But, but I'm a God who places his love on people, and I'm choosing to do that. The second choice is God's people must choose him. Now, can you carve that choice in granite? The answer, of course, is no. Remember, one generation forgot. Another generation must remember. It turns out that remembering is what you do when you have made a thick commitment. Think about it. Remembering protects the thick commitments we make. What do people need to remember if they stay married? How much we loved each other the first time we saw each other? No. Vows were exchanged. A commitment was made. 
How do parents remember that it's my responsibility to be a steward of the spirituality of my children? Well, I want to suggest that they remember that by remembering that God's a priority and that their children are a priority. How do churches remember to stay healthy? Well, they remember the truth. They remember the mission. They remember that it's not our job to create the unity of the church. That's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. It's our job to maintain the unity of the church. We maintain thick commitments by remembering that we have committed deeply. And everyone's kind of like, well, duh. But it's so easy to forget that along the way. So easy to lose sight of that. So Moses takes this to the next level, this whole commitment thing. If you look at verse 10, he tells us how to protect this commitment. Never forget the day when you stood before the Lord your God at Mount Sinai, where he told me, summon the people before me, and I will personally instruct them. Then they will learn to fear me as long as they live, and they will teach their children to fear me also. Now, notice where he takes them back to in their memory banks. <clears throat> he takes them back to Mount Sinai. This, in our story, the story of God, is a mountaintop experience, both literally and figuratively. Just like you can't understand the United States of America without understanding the Constitution you cannot understand God's story without understanding this Sinai experience. And what happened at Sinai? Well, Sinai is the place where God gives Israel commandments, 10 commandments. I like what this author says. A commitment isn't just love and promise. It is love and promise Put under law. In living out a commitment, each party understands the fickleness of feelings. So they bind their future selves to specific obligations. You know, they're basically saying, I don't trust me as far as I can throw me, right? I don't know that I'm always going to feel the right way, so I'm putting some boundaries in relationships so I stay faithful to it. Now, here's where we go wrong with this idea of commandments. Sometimes we draw the conclusion that God creates commandments just for the sake of keeping commands. That, my friends, is a form of religion that we call legalism. Uh, what's legalism? Well, legalism is like sitting in your car and putting your car in drive just for the sake of going forward instead of going someplace. Commandments are not meant to just kind of like push you along in life with no aim and purpose. No, commandments are meant to take you someplace. They take you to the place of loving God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. They take you to the place where you love your neighbor as yourself. You feel obligated to know who your neighbor is, know what concerns them, and then actually do something about it. 
Commandments are what we do when we love. Jesus said that. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, love's impulse is actually to put itself under obligation for the sake of love. Think about when you fell in love. It was shortly after the realization that you fell in love that you wanted to say to that significant person, and I will always love you. Love pursues obligation. Love pursues dedication. And I believe that you and I were wired for this. We were created for it. We see this in the scriptures, but also if you just do kind of current research, whether in the fields of sociology or psychology, we find that people are wired for this idea of thick commitment. I think of the psychologist and atheist Jonathan Haidt. Haidt wrote a book with this title, The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. And in one of the most striking moments of the book, he sketches for us two profiles of two different people. So the first profile I would call unattached Bob. Okay, here's Bob. Bob is 35 years old. He's single. He's white. He's attractive. He's athletic. He earns a six-figure salary. He lives in sunny Southern California. And by the way, Bob does what Bob wants when Bob wants. Bob loves to read. He loves going to museums. He does it. The second profile is deeply committed Mary. So Mary and her husband live in snowy Buffalo, New York, and I've lived there before, okay? I know what it's like. They earn a combined income of $40,000 per year. Uh, Mary is 65 years old. She's black. She's overweight. She's plain in appearance, but she's highly sociable, and she spends lots of her time engaging in her church and in her community. And here's one more thing about Mary. She's also on kidney dialysis because she has kidney problems. Now, hate throws a curveball at us. He says, all right, I want you to make a bet right now. I want you to put your money out on the table. I want you to consider Bob's life and Mary's life. And let's just be honest, when we think about the two lives, he says, you probably are more attracted to Bob's life. But if I'm a betting person, hate says, I'm putting my money on the table to say that Mary is happier than Bob. Well, how? Well, look at her life. There are two thick commitments involved. We heard it in her profile. Mary is married, and Mary is deeply incorporated in the life and body of a local church. And it turns out that these two things are not unrelated. Do you know that while simply identifying as a Christian does nothing to reduce the likelihood that you will divorce your spouse, regular church attendance 
seems to have a protective effect on marriage. So Mary's thick commitment to her church provides more for her than Bob's unattached life. But that doesn't make sense. I mean, Bob, Bob just seems so free. He has nothing constraining him. He can do whatever he wants when he wants. Listen to what Tim Keller says. Real freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as it is finding the right restrictions. Okay, let's ask a question. We're talking about thick commitment this morning. What does that do for us? And I think a better way to think about it is what does it do to us and for others? Okay, think about the story of Ruth, if you know that one. If you don't know that story, go and read it today. You can find it in the Bible. It's about a 15-minute read. Ruth is a story that finds itself immortalized in Scripture, and it's kind of odd. Because it's not like, you know, a story of David slaying Goliath or something like that. It's a very just humble, innocent, mundane kind of story. And it's immortalized in Scripture because Ruth makes a thick commitment to her mother-in-law of all people. So listen to her commitment. This is probably one of the thickest commitments we see in Scripture. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. I know when that verse pops up, we get so much warm, fuzzy feelings about that verse. That's the kind of verse that I post on my kitchen wall, the kind of verse that I memorize and I quote freely, but Let me just be honest with you for a minute. That is a lot bigger than just something that makes us feel warm and fuzzy. That is what we would call a transformational choice. And what is that? Well, it's the kind of choice that will change your life. The kind of choice that changes you as a person. And it's the kind of choice that inevitably impacts the life of other people. And when it comes to making these kinds of choices, one author says it like this, you shouldn't fool yourself. You have no idea what you are getting into. After all, Ruth just as easily could have made that commitment to Naomi and went off and starved with her. So, The paradox of life, we tend to deliberate over the small choices and we tend to deliberate more carefully over them than the big choices. Like the small choices, like the next time I'm going to buy a car, we're going to spend like hours pouring over all of the gas mileage details and what kind of interior does it have and does it have a good consumer report? Some of you are thinking into the future and you're like, oh, I need an EV. Others of you are like, I don't care. I just want a gas-guzzling car. I just, that's what I want. It turns out that we labor over these choices. But then the big choices in life really aren't choices. They're more like quicksand. Like, why did I get married? Well, 
I'd like to think it's because I found someone who shared my common values and we were on mission together. And, and I did that because I wanted that kind of spouse in my life. But most people are married today because this was who I was dating and who gave me attention and affection. Or your job. Was it a career that came out of just, I got a job, or was it a vocation? I sensed that I could contribute to human flourishing because of this. As you look at the transformative choices in the Bible, I don't sense that Ruth just slid into her commitment to Naomi. And I don't sense that Nehemiah chose to leave Persia and head to uh, Jerusalem to build a wall because he was just like, well, this is just quicksand and I fell into it. I don't get the sense that Jesus laid down his life on the cross because he just happened to be on planet Earth at that time. The truth is, As you look at Scripture, there would be no story at all if it were not for transformational choices made from love. The kind of choices that you can't predict. The kind of choices that change you along the way. The kind of choices that we see God bless over and over and over again in the scriptures. Think about Ruth's story after all. Not only did that transformational choice pull the two women out of poverty, but that transformational choice put Ruth in a position to be one of the mothers of Jesus. So our story is a story of thick commitments, not thin commitments. There's no story in thin commitments. Thick commitments are the kind of stories that are worth telling. I mean, think about the people who come before us. Grab your packet, if you would, please. And turn with me to page six. I'm really proud of just... James and Bella and the team, they they did a really good job with this packet. I was impressed, to say the least. And one of the things that they incorporated is this timeline. Now think about this timeline. Think about the transformative choices that would have been needed to be made along the way for us to be here today. Now some of you You lived through some of this. You know this timeline. And I want to encourage you, tell others about these stories. They're worth remembering. They matter. But if you don't know the stories, keep this packet. Bring it with you to church. There's space for notes. There's space for small groups. And as you're looking through this packet, start engaging your sanctified imagination. Think about what kind of things were these people facing at these times? You know, why was their decision to do what they did at this time a transformational choice? What would they have wrestled with spiritually? What would their prayer life have looked like? I mean, I think about Captain George Lovell. James referenced him earlier, and I'm I'd like to just think about what would motivate someone to donate a parcel of land so that a church could be built in this place 
And let me just say, he had no idea that this would become the type of real estate that it would become today at that time. I like to imagine what he was thinking. I like to imagine that God had it on his heart for there to be a gospel light presence in Osterville. And that he was thinking about the Great Commission. And as he was thinking about the Great Commission, he was recognizing that it is just as much local as it is international. Turns out that what we do in our own backyard matters as much as what we do across the ocean. If we're not faithful here, how are we going to be faithful there? We have to be global Christians, globally minded and locally relevant. And this man, Captain Lovell, he puts his wealth where his heart is. Because it turns out that our wealth is always connected to our hearts. And wealth can make us extremely unhappy if we don't have a God-sized plan for what to do with it. Here's another thing I think about as I consider God's ways, God's kingdom, our story, remembering. God doesn't need us to be abundantly wealthy for us to give to a God-sized plan. You know, I had the opportunity to go back. I shared this with you all a couple of weeks ago to my dad's church, the church that I called home. And, you know, when I was a younger guy, I ran around that church, used it, abused it, you know, all of that stuff. And I never really thought about the why. Like, why, are, why is this church here? How did this church come to be? Well, I came in with a different perspective. I started looking around the building. And as you look at this church, it's incredible. First, look at that stone there. And look at the year that this church was finished. I don't know if you can see it, but it says 1936. All right. Histories of student out there, uh, students of history out there. When is 1936? It is in like the heart of the Great Depression. So my dad has been a pastor of this church for 30 years, and he and I are in competition now, so I've got to try to beat him. And part of what he discovered along the way is some of the members, when he was early on in ministry, were still living that were a part of this build. One of the ladies that was involved in this build recalls that they felt blessed and lucky when they had moldy bread to eat for that day. You're sitting there thinking, like, what? Like, why in the world would people forced to eat moldy bread give to build a local church in Oaklawn, Illinois? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. As I've been reading about all of this, I've been reading a couple of books on wealth and generosity and giving and one of them was written by a Christian financial advisor, and he said, I want to tell you the number one question that I'm asked by Christians when it comes to wealth and finances. The number one question is, when is the next financial crisis coming? So not like, do I have funds that I can give generously to God's kingdom, but a fear-based 
anxious, anxiety-based thought process. And he says to these people, he says to them, we need to stop worrying so much about the next recession or depression, things that we cannot predict. And we need to start focusing on the giving crisis that already exists right here, right now in our culture. See, I could show you empirically, and I'm not going to do this every week, but I could show you empirically that Christians today give less per capita, per year, percentage of income than people did in the Great Depression. You see, your circumstances are never an obstacle to doing what God calls us to do, to be generous, to give, to pour our resources into the kingdom of God work. These people in the Great Depression, these believers, God put it on their heart to be a gospel light in Oak Lawn, and so they put their treasure where their heart was. I love looking at the next picture that you'll see on the screen. You see the original stones in the wall. I especially love that, that cross. These people start running out of materials, and they start grabbing common stones to build the church. Now, no one really wants their church wall to look like that. But it's just a beautiful reflection of what they had at the time, what they could do, how they could continue moving the project. And here's the deal. Those common stones provided for 90 years of gospel ministry so far. And here's another powerful choice they made along the way. They refused to turn that space into a shrine. A shrine is a thing where you say you cannot touch Kids cannot run through the hallways of shrines. You do not bring coffee into shrines. No, they continued building onto this property. 1936, 1956, 1986. And they're still doing it today because they want to be vibrant for gospel ministry. I've heard it said like this. Everyone wants to see a miracle, but no one wants to be in the position to need one. <laughs> and I resemble that remark. But here's the truth. It's really fun to be involved in miracles. This church, for example, as I've heard the stories over the years, believes that God provided a minor miracle to them. Uh, they were in the building process, and they had gotten up to the point where they were ready to complete the roof of the build. And they didn't have the steel materials to finish the roof. So what do you do? Well, you don't do anything. They pray. And it turns out that this business owner that owns a construction company of some sort is driving past the church. His truck breaks down right in front of the church, and he has a whole load of steel beams. In a moment of exasperation, when one of the church members comes and talks to him about the truck and what he's doing and how they, and they help, he says, I can't do anything with this stuff. I'm not going to be able to get this truck up and running for months. I'll tell you what, let me just donate the steel to your building and get this, it's the exact amount of steel that they need to complete the roof. J. Hudson Taylor, who spent 50 years in China, 
serving the Lord, believing God big for ministry. He was reflecting on the ways of God, and he says, I have found that there are three stages in every great work of God. First, it is impossible. Then, it is difficult. Then, it is done. This is the kind of thing I want to see God do today. Impossible, difficult, done. As I remember, as I think about God's ways, I feel it on my heart that I want to make a thick commitment. And I want to be a part of a body of Christ that feels compelled to make a thick commitment together. That's the kind of church that I want to be involved in. I don't care what we're doing, but if we're doing it together, that is so important. And I believe that these are the kind of things that we don't have to do, but these are the kind of things that we get to do as a people of God. Well, how do we do this? Well, first, part of it involves our giving. The more I think about this project, the more I think about this initiative, the more I just say to myself, this is our story. It's not somebody else's story. This is our story to tell to our community, to our family, to our future. And we together could put our loving handprint upon this church for the next 30 years. So here's what I want to ask you to do as a church. Don't take like this commitment card and go home and fill it out and throw it somewhere and forget about it. Take this commitment card, tuck it in your Bible or some place that you frequent. Hopefully your Bible is that place. And pray and ask God and say, God, what do you want from me and from my family? In fact, as a family, pray together. You see, the beautiful reality about God's kingdom is that everyone can give meaningfully. Everyone can participate. Everyone can be involved. The only gift that's considered small in the kingdom of God is the gift that has no faith and no heart behind it. But every other gift is so precious in his sight. And so our prayer is 100% participation. Beyond that, though, we're not just making a transformational choice to give to a project. We're doing more than that. We're choosing to become something as a church. What kind of church do we want to be? You know, as I think about this, here's my heart. I want to be more than just a church with a big auditorium where people come and fill it and they kind of loosely mingle with one another a couple of times a month. I want to be a place of genuine love and care, and I don't care about the size of the place. I care about the things that are taking place inside of the place and exploding out of the place. I want to be a place marked by the love of Christ, radical love, the kind of place where we radically love our neighbor. That's our community. And we radically love one another. That's our family. And we radically love the next generation. That's the future. Church, I hope you want more for this place. So as you think about all of this, 
the real prayer of faith that we've got to keep asking God, keep laying before us, is God, make us in to this place. Let's do that right now. Let's pray. Lord, when we come before you as your people, first and foremost, the thing in our heart is to know you and love you and remember who you are and remember your ways. And to remember that the same God that we read about in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same God at work in our lives today. The same God that led the people of Ostrovo Baptist Church back in 1835 is the same God leading our church today. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people of thick commitment, that we would make a transformational choice, that we would seek your face for the future of this place, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.